everyone. <clears throat> Pardon me with my little hoarse voice. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. We are doing a virtual broadcast tonight, given the present health crisis in New York with the coronavirus. We are joining you virtually in many different locations. Uh, our trusty engineer, Sam Leibowitz, is at his home studio. I am in mine, and our guests are chiming in live from theirs as well. Um, professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate. And as many of you know, I love New York and the city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of New York. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. On many of our shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Uh, many of you know that prior episodes have covered things like the history of U.S. presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history in New York. Uh, we've explored African-American history in the city. We've explored the history of women activists here in the women's suffrage movement. We've also explored the history of the city's LGBT community, and we've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. Believe it or not, they've been part of the city for more than 200 years. We've even talked about the history of punk and opera in New York, important subjects to some of our listeners. And on other shows, we've explored some of our great train stations and even crossed some of our bridges. In the future, we'll journey to some of our parks, the subway, and even our freshwater system. After our broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we are visiting a very special neighborhood in the city, one that's steeped in a lot of history, and that's also seen a lot of change over the last 15 or so years. And I'm talking about Chelsea, a neighborhood that's near and dear to my heart. Our first guest is a Rediscovering New York regular. He's Kevin Draper of New York Historical Tours. Kevin is a historian, and he's also an impassioned native New Yorker. He actively brings to life the incredible and inspiring stories that have made New York the most exciting and influential city in the world. For over 10 years, Kevin has provided top-rated first-class tours and New York experiences to locals and visitors from all over the globe. His dynamic knowledge, professionalism, and gift for storytelling have awarded him constant five-star reviews. TripAdvisor Certificate of Excellence year after year, and also won the accolades of the most discriminating clientele. Kevin has led historical talks and lectures for top universities and Fortune 500 companies, and is a respected historical consultant for major media and publications, including CBS, ABC, Bloomberg, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Kevin, another hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Yes, it's good to uh, hear you and actually see you. And, uh, I'm glad to be back. Yes, to our listeners, even though we're not in studio, uh, thank goodness to the technology of the modern internet, we actually can see each other. It's almost like we're having a virtual meeting right here. Kevin, you are a native New Yorker. What part of the city did you grow up in? So, actually, as a child, Long Island, but I moved soon after, um, and mostly on the Upper East Side, and for a short time on the Upper West Side. Mm. 
How did you get into the business of illuminating, and I'm even going to say entertaining New Yorkers and visitors about our neighborhoods and our history? So it literally was a passion of mine since I was in grammar school. Um, I mean, some of the first adult books that I read, uh, The Great Bridge by David McCullough, for instance, about the Brooklyn Bridge. These were some of the first books I was reading in grammar school. So I just had this passion for history, especially New York City history since then. So through grammar school, junior high, high school, um, through my 20s, you know, whenever I'd be walking around with people or talking to people, I'd always be explaining the history of New York. And, you know, people would always say to me, you know, you should start some sort of business, make it a career, maybe become a historian and, and just focus on New York City. And I thought it was impossible to do something you really love and enjoy <laughs> as a job, as a career. Um, but that's what I did. And that's what I'm still doing now. And I'm very happy I made that choice years back. Well, on a personal note, it's something I actually admire and a little envious of. I studied history and I get to do it an hour a week, but uh, you get to do it all the time as your, as your career. That's great. Um, and speaking of history, you know, one question I like to ask guests about neighborhoods is, uh, you know, sometimes people think that our history started when Europeans came. And I always like to find out uh, what Native peoples were doing in particular areas. Um, were there Native peoples living in what would become Chelsea before the Dutch, the Dutch arrived on the scene? So you had the Lenape Indians, yes, that were here on the island of Manahatta, which is what they called it, which actually means island of many hills. Uh, you don't really see any hills around Chelsea, but when you go further up north towards like Washington Heights, you'll see why it's so hilly. It almost looks like San Francisco. So they called it Matahatta, and they were on several parts of the island, and they would basically change depending on the seasons, depending on the hunting season, but almost right on the border of where Chelsea is in the meatpacking district, it was one of the lower areas of the city that actually had access to the river naturally. And the, that's where the Indians were known to actually to go out into the river to fish and actually head over to what is considered New Jersey today and deal with other tribes. So pretty much right on the boundary, again, of the meatpacking district and what is now Chelsea, the Indians would have been there. That would have been one of the handful of spots that you could point back to you know, pretty much almost for a thousand years since the Indians were here, that they actually had a semi-permanent settlement. So yes, the long answer to that is yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> was there any notable history in this part of the island when the Dutch were here? Or was it, or was it just a farm and that was it? It, it? That was pretty much it. I mean, everything for the, from the Dutch point of view was basically below Wall Street. I mean, there literally was a wall there um, where Wall Street is. So for the Dutch, you know, they did they did go up and around to hunt and do other things throughout the island, but no, most from the Dutch point of view, everything was pretty much south of, of, of um, Wall Street, more or less. Well, someone who was of Dutch descent sold part of what would become Chelsea to someone from England, actually. Uh, and that was Major Thomas Clark? Yes. Yes, Thomas Clark. And what he had done... He, he had a, a home there and an estate there. So this is when the area north of Wall Street, basically during the 100-year period when the, when the British were here, they were basically scattered estates throughout the city, what we consider the city today. So they were uh, areas that had, you had massive amount of acreage and you would have your, your original home. So that's where the Clark family was, yes. Mm -hmm. And when you went, it got up to about, 
after the Dutch, well, I'll get into the, to, to after the, the British left, but yes, that was the family, the Carp family, which would have this land from that period, from the, from that 1700s up and through the 1800s. In fact, uh, Chelsea is one of the neighborhoods where the name of the neighborhood actually has its origins before the revolution by the people who owned it. Yeah, he, that, that was his estate. He called his home that, but it was actually named after an area in England, in London. And it was actually um, like sort of like a hospital in London with, that took care of soldiers, Chelsea Hospital. So it, that's where its origins come from. And it is one of the f- handful of places that the name was not changed after the American Revolution. Uh, they kept um, the English name. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Which was, yeah, which was very rare because they went around, they changed just about all the names throughout the city, the street names especially. Mm. So it's one of the few that still survive. Well, um, you know, I stand corrected. Actually, uh, uh, Major Thomas Clark's daughter was Charity, not Chelsea. My apologies. Um, but actually, uh, uh, Charity's uh, son, who inherited the property, actually turned out to be a very famous New Yorker. And not just famous New Yorker, but famous uh, in the English-speaking world for something that he wrote. And that was Clement Clark Moore. Who was Moore? And what did he do? What do we know him for? So his main contribution, most people... Um, it depends which historian you, you talk to, but they do credit him with writing "Twas the Night Before Christmas," uh, the famous poem. Now, with that, that poem that he wrote, "Twas the Night Before Christmas," or that poem, was the basis for what we consider to be modern-day Christmas. A guy named Thomas Nast took that poem and actually made drawings of what this so-called Santa Claus looked like. And a lot of the, the imagery that we have about Santa Claus and Christmas in general came from that poem that Thomas Ness drew that were in magazines. And then from there, Coca-Cola actually picked up on that. And that image you see of Santa Claus that we all think of today, that's what it came from, that poem that he wrote in Chelsea. So very much the modern day Christmas, not from a religious standpoint, but from more of a uh, commercial standpoint of what you think of Santa Claus Christmas came from him. Mm. And Moore was born right after the American Revolution, but there were two major things he did that not only impacted the neighborhood, but that still give us the beautiful neighborhood that we see today. Well, that was dividing up, dividing up the neighborhood because they eventually, when the, when the grid system came in, um, most landlords were not overly thrilled about having their um, their properties divided up because most of these were estates. You know, they had massive amounts of property. So when the grid system was coming through, the city was basically forcing you, and they were running avenues and streets through your property. But what most uh, landowners realized when they were first really upset about it, then they realized, well, wait a minute, my my property is sort of being divided up. It's going to be easy to sell or to lease. And actually, the value of the property took off. So that area of what is today is Chelsea, that's what he had done. They actually started to divide up that property. And it is considered, one not the first, but one of the first real neighborhoods in New York City is that Chelsea neighborhood. And the houses are extraordinary. I mean, the houses on 20th, 21st, and 22nd Street. And uh, I also say, too, if it, anyone who walks on those streets, mostly between 9th and 10th Avenue, many of those houses were built before the water system uh, was established in the 1840s. Um, and it was a wealthy neighborhood. That's why they're so beautiful. Most of those homes were, you know, it was the wealthier part of town. 
And Morrisville did something else that uh, still has uh, a legacy today. He made a land grant to a religious institution. Yes, um, which I think is actually still there, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, that's most of the the churches that you see in, in New York City, it, it usually somebody donated that land. So yes, he did. And it is, it's, it's incredible that that actually is still there. Yes. In fact, part of it, it's, uh, it's still a private educational campus. You can, you can have access to it, but it's not easily accessible from the street. The chapel is astounding. I think it's beautiful. And it's just a, it's, it's a very special place in, in the city. It's um, one of those hidden secrets in New York, by the way. It is true. If you do walk over there and walk through that that courtyard in between some of those buildings, it really is pretty amazing. Although um, in the last 15 years or so on both ends, on the 9th Avenue end and the um, 10th Avenue end, they have developed it somewhat uh, for uh, private living and also for guest houses. I think it's called the Desmond Tutu Center. That's on, that, that's on 10th Avenue. Um, in fact, an old friend of mine, he actually went to the General Theological Seminary uh, wow. as a, uh, uh, an Episcopal priest in training, I think in the late 50s. It was interesting to hear his stories about it. Um, before we take a short break, um, I want to talk about Chelsea's industrialization briefly. It was started as a residential neighborhood. Um, when did industry start moving to Chelsea and how did it get started literally a block away or across the street from some of these magnificent townhouses. It's unusual to have, you know, an industrial area, like literally be across the street. A lot of it was because originally, if you went back to say the Dutch period, right, if you went back to the 1600s, everything, um, all the piers and all, all the commercial activity was taking place on the east side. So basically where the South Street Seaport is today, that's where everything was. But as you got into the 1800s and you had steamships coming in, the ships were getting bigger and the, the, they needed bigger piers. It was getting busier. They needed a deeper harbor. So everything kind of shifted over to the west side. So you started seeing all this development along the lower west side of Manhattan. And they started abandoning a lot of those piers on the east side and they started swinging everything around. Also, the train lines that were coming into the city ran along uh, when Vanderbilt developed the rail line, they came along the west side. So basically, Manhattan was connected to the rest of the country through those west side rails, and it made it just easier to get products in and out of the city, either loaded up onto ships or to trains, closer to the river. So any of the homes that were there, some of them were torn down, and they started to quickly develop the waterfront on the west side. So that's why that's why it's so close. I mean, some of those houses still exist. It's now they're landmark, but it's just basically a miracle that they survived because the entire West Side, basically from where the World Trade Center was, but all the way up to about where Seventy Second Street is today, that whole area was developed as an industrial area for New York City. Well, um, but we still have those magnificent houses that remain, and still yes. are magnificent houses. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Kevin Draper of New York Historical. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Rediscovering New York and our program number 60 about Chelsea. Um, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about New York historical tours and um, uh, the present uh, situation excluded, uh, the kind of tours that our listeners might be able to, to avail themselves of with your company? So we literally, we have walking tours mainly. Um, we do have vehicles if needed, but we do walking tours of all five boroughs. And pretty much every neighborhood you could imagine we ha- or name, we have a tour of. So Soho, Central Park, Midtown, um, Brooklyn Heights, Dumbo, Lower Manhattan, pretty much every name, Harlem, you name it. A lot of specialty tours, Jazz Age Tour, Gilded Age Tour, Hamilton Founding Fathers Tour, Chelsea Highline Tour. Um, so pretty much any tour or any area of New York that you're interested in visiting, we have tours for that. And they're led by people like myself who owns the company, uh, we're all basically historians or history professors that give the tours. Oh, great. And how can people find out about programming in, in future times? So you can actually go to New York Historical Tours.com. That's our website. And we are going to start doing some video uh, tours because everything that's happening right now. So we're going to have like these mini tours that you'll be able to go on our website and click on to and get some of these tours you can actually take from home. So you'll actually, they'll be led by me. Uh, just little short ones, just like little, little taste of what's going on. Uh, so that's coming up now, but in the future, once everything passes, yeah, just go to that website, NewYorkHistoricalTours.com, and all the information is right there. Well, virtual tours, that's a great idea. I'll have to actually check them out. <laughs> you'll have to let me know when they go live. Definitely uh, especially that I have a lot of time on my hands, uh, not doing much of the real estate business at the moment, although we are continuing to serve clients. Um, Moving past the Civil War in Chelsea, um, some people wouldn't know it, but um, around West 23rd Street was actually considered the epicenter of the city's theater district. Yes. Um, And uh, also some of the country's earliest movie studios, believe it or not, were located in Chelsea. There was the Chelsea Sound Studio on 26th Street. And um, people might recognize the name Mary Pickford. She made some of her first movies uh, in Chelsea. Um, 
Today, Chelsea is one of those quintessential mixes of New York neighborhoods. It has beautiful row houses, but also has apartment buildings and has some older tenements and even even some housing projects. When when did the in the residential part of the neighborhood, Kevin, when did the neighborhood's non-row house residences start to take shape? So um, one last thing, what you just said before, by the way, that movie studio that started there um, when they started doing productions in the teens, Adolf Zucker, who was one of the guys that founded that, by the way, he's one of three who founded Paramount Pictures. So when mm. I mean, you think of very much the birth of Hollywood, and that's one of the places you can point to. Um, but at, to answer that question, so the, the area itself became a little bit depressed along the west side. I mean, a lot of the city, basically, after World War II, when a lot of people were actually moving out to the suburbs, there were a lot of neighborhoods that you could say that just started to lose a little bit of its luster. So they were starting to redevelop um, different parts of the city, and they were looking to put in all types of housing. So Chelsea was just one of these neighborhoods, especially because a lot of that industry after World War II, so you were talking the late 40s into the 1950s, a lot of that industrial and a lot of that stuff that was being made and built in Chelsea moved out of the city. So some of the buildings were repurposed, but some of them were torn down. So they were that's when they started building low-income housing, middle-income housing. So it really started in the 1950s and 60s when we started to see the neighborhood really drastically start to change. I do want to go back a little bit, though, back to the 19th century. There's one of the most incredible buildings in New York. Um, it's now the Hotel Chelsea. That's on 23rd Street. It was built in the 1880s. It seems like an enormous building to be built in the neighborhood around that time. It was built around the same time as the Dakota uh, on Central Park West and the Windermere uh, on 57th Street, but it was taller than both of them. Um, was it the tallest residential building in the city at the time that it was constructed? It was, and it actually made more sense. Something like the Dakota, I mean, that was one of the jokes about it, one of, one of the theories for the name of the Dakota that was so far away from everything else. But Chelsea was not. I mean, Chelsea was still kind of in the middle of the action. So when they built that when they built that building, which originally was going to be one of the first co-ops in the city, so before it was actually in a hotel, it made sense to develop around there. You had Ladies Mile not too far from there, the, the, the very exclusive shopping district. Um, Union Square, Madison Square, again, within walking districts, it was the theater district. It made perfect sense. The area was getting very crowded and it was being developed um, pretty drastically at that time. And then you also had steel and the elevator was more or less coming online. So in other words, skyscrapers were really starting to be built in the 1880s. So to have something like that built there made perfect sense, definitely from an investment standpoint. If you were investing money, you'd much rather have something built in the Chelsea area opposed to, say, where the Dakota was built in the Upper West Side. So it made perfect sense to build that. And at that time, electric power was being more widely utilized with uh, uh, well-to-do. So uh, elevators certainly would have been able to use that technology. Yes. Um, one interesting thing about uh, the building that I've found out about, it's uh, – it was not. It was not always a hotel. It was originally a cooperative. Yes, actually, yep. Mm -hmm. How did it become a hotel? What happened? Basically, the the cooperative itself. You know the, what they were trying to do and what they were trying to accomplish. Basically, pretty much just went bankrupt. Um, so when that happened, then it was converted into a hotel. They just figured they would be able to make more money as a hotel 
instead of trying to keep permanent residents. And again, you know, the city was starting to become, believe it or not, tourism. When you think of modern tourism, it's really starting at this point where people are really coming to New York City to actually visit. And they really did need a place to stay. So the idea of hotels, especially in the modern sense, was really starting at that period going into the 20th century. So it made perfect sense to convert that building into, into a hotel. It became a residential hotel. Some yes. of the more famous yep. names of people who lived there, Dylan Thomas, and uh, one a little less uh, with notoriety was Sid Vicious. Yeah, um, and Arthur C. Clarke was rumored to have written part of uh, 2001 when he was living there. Mm. Another interesting factoid about Chelsea that I, I can't help m- mentioning a uh, bit of its commercial history. In the early 1940s, uh, tons of uranium was stored in a warehouse on 20th Street at the Baker and Williams warehouse. And uh, uh, obviously the uranium is long gone, but uh, it, was decon- it was only decontaminated in the 1990s. I wow. used to hang out in some of the bars down there on West Street and 20th Street in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, I don't know if you could have felt the uh, vibrations <laughs> of the radioactivity, but almost, al- almost you could have. Um, then we have London Terrace. London Terrace was actually built before the war, and it, it's it's a huge complex. It, it goes block to block. It must be 25 or 30 stories tall. Um, what was the thinking behind building that in Chelsea at the time? So when the developer built that, the idea of apartment living was definitely more accepted at this point. You know, the idea of of, of living in a building, especially for the middle class, was really starting to come into its own at this point, you know, especially in Manhattan. It's, unless you were building a, a Gilded Age type mansion, you, if you were middle class, you were going to live in an apartment building. So the developer built this in, uh, in really in the late 1920s, and it actually opened around 1930. And what I find interesting about this apartment building, it actually came with amenities. So the idea of having like a pool, a restaurant, uh, you can get your shoes shined um, and other basically amen- a gym, what we consider to be a gym, is one of the first to do that with amenities. Now, of course, today that's a dime a dozen. Every building, you know, they try to advertise they have all these amenities and everything. But this is one of the, actually the first to actually do that. Problem was it opened up in 1930. So the Great, you know, the Great Depression was really starting to kick in at that point. So the actual developer did lose it. Uh, in bankruptcy, so he did lo- lose the complex, but at least he they, he did get it built. Well, more recently, Chelsea has seen um, uh, a real transformation in terms of a couple of its uh, public amenities um, and also in its in its commercial activity. I want to talk briefly about the gallery scene in Western Chelsea. You know, largely west of Tenth Avenue. When did galleries start moving there, and why Chelsea? Well. Chelsea, what happened with that is, is that when you looked at that particular scene, that would have been more in the village beforehand. But by the time you got into mm, 1970s, definitely going to the 1980s, the value, the values, the rents and stuff started going up in um, Greenwich Village, basically. So it's the next closest neighborhood that was nearby that you can get a great quality space high ceilings, big, big place. Um, it was relatively cheap. So by the time you got into the 80s and 1990s, that's when you started to really see Chelsea become known for that, for having galleries. And it's mainly just the way it always is. When prices start to rise in a particular neighborhood, people pick up and move somewhere else, especially in the art world. Two other um, 
uh, amenities and neighborhood attractions I want to talk about are the Highline and the Chelsea Market. Um, how did the Chelsea Market come into being and what was it originally? Because it wasn't always the Chelsea Market as we know it. No. So that that ties right in with the manufacturing of the, of the neighborhood. So a lot of the buildings that were being built were built for manufacturing. And that particular spot where the Chelsea Market is, it was actually NBC, the National Biscuit Company. Um, so they had their essentially their baking facilities there. Um, their offices were in the complex, which, by the way, as the company grew, they kept building more and more buildings. Um, so, you know, the complex now, I think it's it was about 14 buildings that were combined. Yeah, it looks um, like so, one building from the face on Ninth Avenue, but it's not. It's you go it's inside. Not. It's m- multiple buildings. It is multiple. It's about, about 14 different buildings. And even some of them are across the street, actually. And they have a couple of skywalks to get across. They actually had their research and develop development um, department in those buildings. So give an example. The Oreo cookie was invented there. Animal crackers were invented there. So that's what was happening in those buildings. So it was the National Biscuit Company. They moved out just like a lot of the other businesses moved out because prices were going up. They needed more space. They were getting bigger. So a lot of them moved over to New Jersey and other parts of the country. So it sat basically empty for a while, but that's that's what it was originally. It was manufacturing of baked goods. Well, you know, New York has given a lot of gifts to the world. I never realized animal crackers and Oreos were included in that list. Yes. Um, uh, and of course, now uh, the Chelsea Market has uh, has food service, restaurants, uh, great shops, and but there are also businesses on their upper floors, offices, some tech companies are there. Um, and that's a great example about repurposing a building, by the way. It's very common today. You hear that a lot in the real estate world about what do you do with some of these big old buildings? How do you repurpose it? Chelsea Market and everything like you just said, that was a perfect example, even early example of how to repurpose these big old buildings into something profitable. Hmm. Well, Kevin, we don't have a lot of time left, but there's one other thing I do want to talk about, and that's the Highline, which is one yes. of New York's great outdoor parks. Um, for, how did we end up with an industrial railroad three stories above above a neighborhood uh, like the Highline became? So originally, those rail lines were actually along the ground, along 10th Avenue. So all all these all these um, raw materials were being brought into the city. Things were being manufactured, and then things were being sent out of the city. Now, the city, especially on the west side, especially in Chelsea, was very crowded, very busy. So to have train lines, freight lines running back and forth, you can imagine that wasn't really a good scene. The avenue started to be known as the Avenue of Death because people were actually getting killed, hit by trains. So the city um, essentially had forced the railroad to elevate the railroad. They wanted to get it off the ground. So in 1930, that's when elevated railroad opened so through 30s 40s 50s 60s and 70s that's what it was it was bringing stuff into the city out of the city closed in 1980 and it sat empty until the park was built how did it get turned into a park where uh because part of the high line i remember was torn down when i was growing up and we used to visit my grandparents in new jersey i remember uh even in the west village there were uh, overhead rail lines and there were still freight cars there some of it got torn down but now it uh uh, it's from gansford street of it still it still exists how did it get saved how did it get turned into a park so there was talk for a long time to, to, to tearing it down um, so by the 1980s, going into the 1990s, there was a big push to tear it down. It was pretty much signed off by the Giul- uh, Giuliani administration because thought was if you were uh, 
landowner having this thing over your head that wasn't being used was just a waste. It was an eyesore. It was keeping the property values down. So um, it was in the 1990s where, again, it was going to be torn down. They actually had some community meetings in Chelsea and, and otherwhere in that area about just normal stuff in the neighborhood. And somebody had gotten up and recommended perhaps turning that old rail line into a park. Joshua David, uh, Joshua David was one of the people that suggested this. David Hammond was the other one. And the, David Hammond actually had said, you know, after the meeting, you know, I actually had the same idea of turning this into a park. So the two of them decided to work together to try to turn this into a park. Problem was, it was going to already, it was already set to be demolished. Now, the only reason I'm naming some politicians, because just this is just what was happening. So when, when Michael Bloomberg came in, this proposal to turn into a park, he agreed and he got the railroad to sign over the old uh, rail line for a dollar. And the city said they would give a certain amount of money into this project. And that's how it all started. So the city got behind it. And then some local people also got into um, bringing that dream into a reality. Mm. And quite an extraordinary urban park it is. There's nothing like it that I've ever been on. But uh, uh, there are models for it in other places, like in Chicago, in one of the city, I think, which had, which turned an elevated freight line into uh, a park. It was actually Paris. That's where they got the idea from. Okay. So there is actually a similar park in Paris. That's where they got the idea to turn this into a park. Because somebody had been over there and seen that in Paris and thought, you know, we could do that here too. So that's kind of how it took off and opened up. First mm-hmm. section opened up in uh, 2009. Mm. Well, it's a great place to visit. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the program again. It's great to see you, even though we're uh, not sitting across the table from each other. Um, Our first guest on this show about Chelsea has been Kevin Draper. Kevin is a historian and the director of New York Historical Tours. You can read about Kevin's offerings, both in real time on the ground and also virtually at NewYorkHistoricalTours.com. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, our next guest is someone who has adopted Chelsea as the place to open and build her business. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. 
Fridays 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, Mortgage Specialist to TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York and its history and the, t- and the textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good morning, New York, real estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear him on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our next guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is Monica Saxena. She's the owner of Aroca Indian Restaurant in Chelsea, someone who recently chose to make Chelsea the home of her business. Before starting Aroca, Monica worked for 14 years in technology and semiconductor companies, starting out as director of operations of a startup and later a program manager for Qualcomm. Monica also works with senior executives at Stabilis Capital Management, it's a money management firm with over a billion dollars in assets under management on how to manage their growing team, improve team dynamics, interpersonal communication, conflict resolution, and goal setting. Monica is a graduate of Wellam Girls School in India. She received her BA in psychology from Lucknow University, that's also in India, and has a postgraduate diploma in business administration from the Institute of Financial and Management Studies, that's in London. Monica's work is not limited to the profit sphere. She's done uh, some nonprofit work. She was on the board of a nonprofit called Women for Afghan Women, and the co-founder and treasurer of another nonprofit called the Salas Foundation. And she also dedicates time to developments in literacy. All three charities help educate underprivileged students, especially girls, in India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Monica lives in New York City with her husband. Monica, hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Um, since I have family in India, I've got to ask you, where in India are you from originally? I grew up in Lucknow, studied in Dehradun, which is the foothills of Himalayas. It's a valley. Uh, So that's where Wellams was and is currently. Uh, But family was basically in UP, 
So, but mm. Lucknow was the main where we were. Mm. When did you live in London, Monica? Uh, after I, after my divorce in the eighties, in in eighties, but uh, England and and London have had a long association. Father was studying in Scotland. Brother was born there. Uh, I studied in a school that was founded by a lady, uh, Miss Linnell, from a village called Wellums, and that's what she named it after. Ah, okay. But uh, I went there in the 80s. We share a little bit of a common history. I went to the University of London in 1988-81. Um, I went to Bedford College, which doesn't exist anymore. As part of the uh, austerity of the Thatcher government, they uh, got rid of that school and merged it into Royal Holloway and Egham. Um, Anyway, when did you when did you move to the states? Uh, not, about thirty three years ago. Huh. Well, before I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it was yeah. in the eighties again. Ah. Uh, yeah. Um, before we get to the opening of Aroka and Chelsea, um, I'm intrigued a little bit about your, your nonprofit involvement. Um, what is Women for Afghan Women? What 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 do they do? It's a very lovely uh, charity founded by a lady called Sunita in in New York. Uh, they basically focus on the children. They, they started lovely programs. They have multiple programs on, on all centered around women. And one of them was bringing the young children out of jail. When the mothers were incarcerated, the children went with them in prisons. Wow. So this charity was one of the first ones to bring the children out, house them because the men folk wouldn't take them and educate them till the mothers were incarcerated. Once they come out of there, try and help them. So it's, it's a very beautiful uh, nonprofit that uh, tries to help women and children. Wow, that's really God's work. Thank you for thank you for, for being part of that. How did you become involved in Women for Afghan Women? Oh, it's, <laughs> you see, it's, it's never, you always ask yourself how you get involved, right? It's always in life, you, you meet people, you, you find out what they're doing, and it touches your heart, and you just uh, go and embrace it and say, okay, how can I help? What is it that I can do? And what is the Salas Foundation? Uh, this was uh, started by somebody that I had met in the 80s, a gentleman who uh, I used to work out with, and uh, he had a dream of uh, opening a charity, and I had a desire to help children. And this is when we were very young in our 20s. And he was looking for land in India to educate girls. So he approached me. We reconnected, I think, after a good 10, 12 years of having parted ways with our different ways our lives went. And Salu's Foundation was uh, launched in Lucknow, where they teach the street children the street uh, girls especially, and these are your daily workers, uh, children who are left on the street while the parents go working. So these children were rounded up to be provided food, clothing, and education. So that's what Salus Foundation did. Wow. M more goddesses work that you're doing. <laughs> and one other thing, before we get to your business in Chelsea, what about developments in literacy? What does developments in literacy do? So this is... Uh, uh, another uh, fabulous uh, charity that focuses on educating girls in Pakistan. And, and I came across this, uh, this charity because my husband, my 
is is a huge fan and a supporter of this particular charity in Pakistan. And uh, they have over 12, 1300 schools that they have adopted in Pakistan, different parts of Pakistan, and is basically just centered around educating girls. Mm. You know, one question I wanted to ask you, Monica, it's um, especially given the history of, of India and Pakistan, um, which has not been so peaceful over over the, the history of both countries. Um, it's very unusual to find someone who's from India who also is involved in a not-for-profit that is serving people in Pakistan and vice versa. My, my uncle in Bangalore, he actually supports uh, a school in, in the south of India. Um, what was your motivation for becoming involved in, in, in helping uh, kids from across the border? So I don't think charities have any borders. I think uh, what you want to do and who you want to help doesn't have a name, nationality or, or anything. It's just you want to help girls, you want to help young people doesn't matter which part of the world they're from. And so for me, whatever touches my heart, that's what I go and support. And uh, you don't know this, but my husband is from Pakistan. And he's been here for the last 35, 36 years. And when I met him, I, I happened to attend one of the galas and realizing what wonderful work they do. Mm. But uh, I don't think there are any boundaries or color or, or face to charity. No, how true. I, ju- I just I, I have not met anyone before who uh, uh, who's from India who has um, uh, contributed charitable work in Pakistan. So I want to I wanted to ask you about that. Um, let's move to your business, moving from the world of, of, of management and and technology to to helping uh, fulfill people through their palate and their stomach. Um, what had you decide to open a restaurant? You know, um, you're familiar with India. You've got relatives there. You know, every time you go visit, they're feeding you, right? It's such an integral part of our culture. Food brings people together. And when I moved to New York, I just felt that... Uh, Indian tapas concept, food was missing. You have lots of restaurants, you know, strewn across the city, hundreds of restaurants, right? And I've always been very fond of uh, cooking at home. Of course, restaurant cooking is a totally different ball game. So I can't say that, you know, I'm a great chef or anything. No, I enjoy cooking. I enjoy feeding. And I just wanted to create a restaurant where I could take my husband on a date and not feel I was sitting in a curry house. So I ah. wanted fun drinks, I wanted fun food, which came out in small plates that I could try and, and enjoy an evening. And that's where the thought of uh, opening an Indian tapas concept restaurant came. And the restaurant, I haven't been there, I've seen pictures of it, Aroka is really beautiful. It, it's not also uh, uh, what you do, it's not a curry house, let's put it that way. No, uh, as I said, you just want something fun. It doesn't have to be put in a box, right? No, no. And of course, you chose to open it in Chelsea. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Monica Saxena about the restaurant that she opened up in Chelsea. We'll be back in a moment. 
Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. to Rediscovering New York and this week's episode on Chelsea. My guest is Monica Soxana. She's the founder and owner of Aroca Restaurant in Chelsea. Um, what does Aroca mean, Monica? So basically in Punjabis, Roka. Initially, it was supposed to be Roka. Roka means when you informally get engaged, when two people come together and they agree that they're going to get married. So it's called Roka, and, and specifically in Punjabi language. But then when we started doing research, we realized Roka is a Japanese restaurant. So then playing around with that word, because it's a small four-letter word and had a, a lovely meaning to it, we decided to put a instead of a om or a a or a the, so we just came up with a Roka. Really not much of oh. you know. What had you designed to open your business in Chelsea? Now, when you are looking at business opportunities, you have to then focus on uh, where you think you'll make a success of it. Apart from that Chelsea is such an enticing and an exciting neighborhood, um, Chelsea at that time did not have an Indian restaurant. After doing all the research, which is what you need to do for a business when you open, uh, it did not have an Indian restaurant. After spending about three months standing at that particular location, going from one avenue to the other, one street to the other, I realized that this is where it needs to be. It just felt right in your gut. Well, you talked about Chelsea as a special neighborhood, and indeed it is. It is. Describe the vibe of Chelsea to you. And also to our listeners, Chelsea, it, it's not ubiquitous. There are different parts of it. So the part of Chelsea that you're in on Ninth Avenue is a little bit different from some of the hustle and bustle on 7th Avenue. Um, describe the vibe of, of this part of Chelsea for you. What is it that you like about it? For me, uh, 
I think what I uh, what I've discovered, I should I should say, as I have uh, been there now, is how the neighbors have adopted you, how it becomes a part of their lives, and they become part of your lives. I think that's what I've really loved about Chelsea, and then all the artistic elements to it. Today, I have a young artist whose home I just happen to be visiting for catering. His artwork hangs in my on my walls because he didn't have any place to exhibit his art. And I'd always dreamt of a restaurant being able to support the local people as much as you are serving food and, and making money. You also need to have an aspect of something where you're giving back to a community. And that mm. young gentleman's art exhibition we've hosted, and I hope to keep continue doing that more. But that's what I, I love about Chelsea is the people. Monica, you're a relatively newer business in Chelsea. I think you've been open around three years. Um, in that time, do you have you seen any changes to, to the part of Chelsea that, that Aroca is, uh, is based in? I've seen a lot more younger people coming in there. Uh, I feel there's more affordability in in the, uh, I guess, people looking for homes. And plus the businesses that have come in, like Google, has brought in a, a, a lot of youngsters. And uh, plus the High Line brings you all the guests. So you, you land up meeting them too when they saunter through your restaurant. So I've seen, I, in three years, I've seen it evolve slowly, slowly into a very vibrant neighborhood. Hmm. Do you have a sense if most of your customers live near Aroca or do you also have a lot of customers who, who come from other places to, to dine and to drink? Because you also <laughs> have great cocktails uh, I think, there. I think uh, if I put it rightfully, my local community sustains me. And my visitors who come from, whether it is Long Island, New Jersey, because everybody, when a restaurant does acquire or starts to acquire a name or a reputation, they come from all over, including guests who are visiting New York City. You know. But as I said to you, the, the neighborhood sustains me. Mm. When they walk in, I have the biggest smile on my face and the hugs that I get from them for the food that is being served. That is just an amazing thing. Mm. I know it's a tough environment right now. And like every other restaurant, uh, Aroca is, is closed right now due to the health crisis that we're, that we're living through. Um, when business gets back to normal um, and things get another degree of normalcy, as a business owner, um, what advice would you have for someone who would want to be your business neighbor? Not in not in the same kind of restaurant, obviously, but would you have any particular advice for them about opening up a business in Chelsea? Yes, uh, I would say be extremely conservative. Be prepared for unforeseen circumstances, whether it is that you don't have a footfall for whatever reason. Today, it's a different, completely unexpected, never thought of. But but as a business owner, I would just say that that be conscious of, you know, running out of money the next day. 
So <laughs> save, save, you know, think twice. Uh, all the things that I have learned in this time that I've owned this place, it's, it's really been an education for me. One more question before we go. Um, is there any kind of business that you wish was in the neighborhood, but that was not? Uh, I think recently uh, a lovely new small, I think, I'm not sure if it's uh, one of the Middle Eastern restaurants open, but I think what is really lacking for the neighborhood is the lunch. Mm. And I don't know what industry or what can help all the restaurants I look across, whether it's pasta, which is an Italian place, or it's meatball, or it is or up and down the chain on that street. I just wish that somehow, you know, the lunch would increase. So mm. need more. I guess Google has taken over the lunch because they provide <laughs> the, best, the best chefs. So I'm hoping that uh, something else would open that would enable all the restaurants to be able to do something at lunch. Oh. All right. Well, Monica Saxena, thank you so much for your time. Um, and thanks for being a guest on Rediscovering New York. Uh, we've been speaking with Monica Saxena, the owner and founder of Aroca Restaurant. It merges Indian flavors for a global palate. You can re find about it online at uh, www.aroca.com. QANYC.com. Monica, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas at TD Bank and Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off I am Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sawyer. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. 
If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 